Hello and welcome to the Mangal Media Show. I am Editor-in-Chief F.L. Levant. Mangal Media is supported entirely by your donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please remember to visit our Patreon site. Mangal Media is also a small press that specializes in publishing the works of writers and artists whose perspectives are often ignored by the westernized gaze of the publishing industry. You can find all our books and publications from our online store at mangalmedia.net. I am particularly excited to announce our most recent publications, A Letter Home and Nostalgia in the Periphery. A Letter Home is a short comic by Ayman Makarem and Hisham Rifai about Beirut and homesickness. Our second publication, Nostalgia in the Periphery, is a limited edition bundle of serigraphy and digital prints from a diverse range of writers and artists who investigate the golden age of global popular culture. The personal essays and short stories in the project ask discomforting questions about who gets to remember and who gets to be forgotten. In this episode, I am resharing a discussion we have recorded for Joey Ayub's Fire These Times podcast. We will be talking about the Nostalgia in the Periphery project that we have launched recently and I will have the opportunity to talk about my own short story, Tippity, which is about the recollections of a 1980s bubblegum cartoon character. Hey everyone, uh, before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about the membership drive that I am doing on patreon.com slash fire these times to celebrate over two years of this podcast. If we hit the goal of 100 new supporters at $5 or more a month or 50 a year, I'll be able to hire a producer, which would give me more time to focus on the research and interviews and actually start releasing two episodes a week instead of one. If you become a supporter, in addition to getting early access to all episodes, you will also have access to our monthly hangout in which myself and everyone else who supports this project come together and chat about pretty much everything. Um, it happens every month on a Saturday and you have access to the link and everything related to that uh, on Patreon. And lastly, if you cannot donate, you can still support by sharing this podcast with your friends and families and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. This helps get more exposure to this podcast and introduce it to more folks. You can also follow this podcast and project on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Substack, and of course the main website. So thanks again, everyone, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm Efe Levant. I am the uh, editor-in-chief of Mangal Media. It's an online uh, publishing platform that's kind of recently turned into a physical publishing platform as well for like the past two years. Uh, we started out in 2016 and we've been kind of like publishing essays, uh, usually with a lot of artwork with uh, artists and writers from what we call the periphery, which is kind of perspectives that are like left out from kind of mainstream western discourse i guess yeah thanks for that so we'll be primarily talking about i loved you you guys described it as this bouquet of printed matter which is i yeah. think it's a lovely lovely sentence so and it's called the the nostalgia and the periphery uh which will probably be the title of this episode because i'm lazy when it comes to titles and talk to us a bit about the project like as you know get into as many details as you want and then i figured we'll talk about 
more broadly, like how we think of nostalgia, how we think of the periphery, and how we think of both at the same time, essentially. Really, the seed of this idea got planted a long time ago, um, maybe around 2017, 2018, when I was talking to a friend who was talking about like how the idea of nostalgia, especially in the kind of um, Levant world, was being kind of used as... Um, it's almost kind of like a propaganda tool for uh, despotic regimes, like post-Arab Spring, because there was like a lot of sentiment um, that's kind of like, oh, you know, like during, before the revolution, like life used to be normal. We used to go about our daily lives. And a lot of outsiders I have seen do that also, like Turkish people who had kind of like visited Syria uh, pre-Arab Spring, they would be like, oh my God, life was so different back then. Look at what happened to the country now etc etc and there was kind of like a really rose-tinted image i mean there's obviously a reason for why these people decided that they wanted to have a revolution it wasn't as wonderful for them uh, as as it is imagined so that kind of started it and then we kind of started thinking about like how although nostalgia is something that makes us feel good uh which is something valuable in itself like feeling good is a good thing like nobody's kind of trying to say that like nobody deserves to feel good or whatever but maybe we could try to be we could try to like have like a collection of writing that can also be critical about this idea of nostalgia so we started two years ago we started online essays on our blog uh called nostalgia in the periphery and we started collecting like people's memories of childhood etc etc for every time I say etc etc I feel like you Jake um, well we started collecting these essays and at some point I got into touch with people who are like into serigraphy prints and things like that and we talked about like whether we could do something together and the first thing that came to my mind was to do um, was to do like a print version of nostalgia in the periphery uh, because it, that print method with the amount of colors that you can use is perfect uh, for publishing a material that is kind of going to be sentimentally impactful. Yeah, so let's just unpack this a bit. Um, as I said, like there's sort of two main themes, I guess, or at least two that we can focus on. Mm -hmm. uh, nostalgia on the one hand and the periphery. And putting them two together is very interesting. So let's see if we can sort of do that. I, I've i been reassessing how I've been thinking about nostalgia lately. And obviously, it's such a big term. It can mean different things. It can be uh, very toxic. Uh, obviously, the whole, you know, white supremacy is essentially uh, feeds off of nostalgia often. And nostalgia is is a is a feeling, you know, the, the memories, quote unquote, or the, the past events, quote unquote, that it it is based on don't even have to be uh, factual. They don't have to have actually occurred, obviously. We see that, like that's the, the entire point, like that the entire thesis of the imagined community. The imagined is is obviously key to that. Um, in Lebanon, obviously I'll focus on that because part of my PhD is, is one of the chapters is on nostalgia. Um, in Lebanon, nostalgia has really taken a form of romanticizing roughly the period between late 50s, sometimes including all of the 50s, even though there was a conflict in 58, and up until 75, more or less. Uh, so the 60s, especially early 70s, that sort of thing. 
And Zomanta size as you know, Lebanon was opening up to the world. It was the so-called Switzerland of the Middle East. Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East, you know, that sort of thing. And it was very much a product. And some people have, have sort of done the, 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 like the, the research to, to kind of back this up. Kind of a product of a, you know, you can think of a tourism ad gone wrong or like a tourism ad that basically became institutionalized. And we ended up sort of being high on our own supplies and believing our own, um, this idea that we were putting forward. Like, you know, while the rest of the Arab world was going in a certain direction, Lebanon was not. And that that difference in and of itself becomes a point of, of pride or, or whatever. But the key thing is that it is rarely spoken about. And honestly, these days, much, much less so. I think the the August blast, like the explosion of the port of Beirut, probably shattered some of these tendencies, um, or at least, I don't know, fastened the pace of its destruction or whatever you want to say. Um, but what, what I was saying is that even before that, it was really talked about in detail. Like the details didn't matter as much. It's like, it's almost like I think of it as like trying to paint a picture, but not having all of the, the brushes for it. Like you just, you approximate a, a certain idea of what you think the past was, because when you do that, you're sort of saying something about the present. And this is what, what interests me about nostalgia. Is that it's not actually about the past. The nostalgia is very much a thing about the present, by definition, since you're thinking about it or you're being nostalgic in the present moment. You're not being nostalgic in the 1800s. You're being nostalgic today about the 1800s. Um, or the idea of the 1800s that you think existed. So I guess I'll stop here and I'll ask you, like, how have you been thinking about nostalgia? What, what has sort of been your thought process? Where did you start? You know, how, how has it changed over time and so on? Um, for Turkey, I think there's like a very similar story about like how we relate to nostalgia. Uh, there's definitely, for example, an aspect of, like you said, Lebanon, they considered themselves to be kind of like separate from the rest of the Arab world as kind of like special. Uh, in Turkey, there's a similar thing about like having considered themselves um, to be different from like the rest of the Middle East or maybe like different from like the rest of the Muslim world. <clears throat> because like mm -hmm. uh, Turkey has secularized kind of like in the 1920s uh, after the First World War, there's been like an independence war, etc., etc. So a lot of people are kind of like really proud about that history. It's an ideology called Kemalism. I'm not going to get too much into detail about that. Just a thought that it kind of makes me tired. Um, so there, there is that kind of aspect to it. And there is a second wave of nostalgia that is kind of like super prevalent, specifically for my generation, uh, people who are kind of like in their kind of early to late 30s right now, uh, for the period of the, the early noughts when AKP, the current governing party, had first come to power. Like, well, a lot of the time, this kind of nostalgia fails to um, fails to take into account this fact, that the, the period that they're nostalgic for is the early period of the current governing party. It's, that part is usually omitted. But they had come into power with like this promise of kind of uh, opening Turkey to Europe and kind of like a more... They had like a more liberal agenda. And over the years... As their popularity started to um, swing around, they have started to dig deeper and deeper into like their more conservative voter base, and they have kind of really fallen apart with the liberals who have initially supported them uh, in the early noughts. But yeah, in the early noughts, there was this period in Turkey, especially in Istanbul, and especially the Istiklal Avenue, which is kind of like super famous for 
uh, being the cosmopolitan heart of the city. Uh, there was kind of like a flowering of a lot of music. There was a flowering of places where alcohol is consumed. There was kind of this thriving of the Turkish middle-class secular lifestyle that was happening there. And now Istiklal Avenue is a place, it's, um, it's a place where people from all over the world come. And since the Arab Spring, also a lot of um, immigrants, uh, communities, uh, it's a place where they have started hanging around as well. And while from like a broader perspective, Istiklal Avenue is fulfilling its purpose as being kind of like the beating heart of like every community who calls Istanbul a home, for a lot of people who are stuck in the early noughts, they feel like their specific way of life is um, being systematically destroyed by the government who doesn't want them to be there. So they associate a lot of um, recent immigrants with a government policy of desecularizing Turkey. It's almost kind of like there's almost like a conspiratorial turn in there. And there is a nostalgia for that as well. And that is something that was my main uh, my main kind of like plug into nostalgia. While I understand why a lot of people really appreciated this period, because myself included, I mean, I have benefited from um, from the changes that happened in that period as well. Uh, but I'm also like much more excited about the changes that are happening right now, because for the first time, Turkey feels uh, like it is in the specific region that it is in. Like before, it used to be a place where like Western tourists would come and observe what the Orient is like. But now, like it feels like we are part of like the Middle East also, not just kind of like a window front for like Western tourists to come and see belly dancing. So I was I was kind of interested in looking into that. Part of me does understand why these people are so nostalgic about this period, and. Uh, Part of my own self is kind of nostalgic about this period, but I also want to be critical about it. So one thing that this makes me think of is that there there is a there is a reason for nostalgia, which we already which we already mentioned, and we already we also said like its its impulse can be one thing, good, bad, whatever, but and it's also its results can be something else. So we know, for example, that there are forms of nostalgia where maybe someone has good intentions and even in their kind of nostalgic remembrances or whatever you want to call it, they don't have any ill-meaning, strong strong ill-meaning feelings towards the other or what have you, but it's politicized in a certain way and it's framed in a certain way that effectively it can do damage. When in, and by damage, I mean like hurt other people essentially. In Lebanon, like, the reason why there is this specific nostalgia is obviously because in 75 there was the outbreak of what would then be called the civil war or the Lebanese wars for 15 years. So like for the generation of, of my parents, you know, my mom, dad, born in 1960, they had 15 years of quote unquote normal life before that. And obviously people a bit older than that would have, you know, maybe their teenage years is associated with before the war and then the war started when they started university or then the war started when they turned 15 and then you, everyone, everyone would have their their dates essentially and for example i find myself being uh yes just yesterday i was being um, interviewed by by a friend uh, Danny Najar for his newsletter and it's a musical newsletter so it's a newsletter about music and he asked questions like uh 
what's a song that you know makes you nostalgic or what what's a song that you go you go to it for for your feeling or reminds you of, of home or something like that mm-hmm. and i said probably like one of the mashra layla songs or something like that and i was thinking about it as to why i mean i like the band and i like i like i like some of their early albums and even late like i like it and stuff but it doesn't I, I don't I'm not the kind of person that really has a band that you know I like more than everything or a song or what have you or, or whatever but it's because of when I started listening to them I was at university 2010 2013 a very specific period that for the rest of the Arab world for example you know it's obviously the Arab Spring and everything that followed it so by no means a a um on, like a a period of time that you would only associate with positive uh feelings and, and i mean even in my case it was an entirely positive but there was that sense of you know you're an undergrad you're you're um, with friends you do your plans and whatnot you kind of devil may care attitude or what have you <laughs> that was never entirely my thing but a bit of that um and i associate that specific period of only three years at the end of the day three four years more or less with you know that kind of music and going to concerts and chilling at the cafe with usually the, that kind of music in the background and there's all of those associations essentially and but that that's a very specific kind of association i've made and now when i listen to let's say a specific song by Mishkolayla or whatever um i would have these memories or even uh, remembrances and i'll explain a bit why i'm making the distinction between those two uh, kind of pop up. I there is this very nice term. I don't know if you've come across it. Uh, the mnemonic imagination, and it's a book. Like the book is called the mnemonic imagination. It's one of the books I'm using in in, in the PhD in that chapter, the nostalgia one. And essentially, what it says is um, the main thesis, if you want, is that um, like memory isn't just something neutral. It's also something that's acted upon imaginatively, or something along those lines. Mm. Meaning that our, when we think of memory, oh, I was there when I was five years old, or I was there when I was seven, or whatnot. More often than not, we're also adding, sometimes even changing, obviously, that specific memory, uh, or adding to it like things from the present. Like there's a good example of like when you when if something happened, let's say 9/11, because that's that's a very common case study of people thinking they remembered where they were on 9/11, but actually were mistaken or that sort of thing. It's been really widely studied. It it also changes after, let's say, a few years. So if you've been, quote-unquote, remembering it seven times, it's not the same as when you have been remembering it 20 times because a lot of things have happened in the meantime. And that's a very useful framework because it sort of says that like you, you shouldn't only trust your own personal experience as the only thing that matters. It actually opens up your world a bit more. And I feel like from the, with with that framework, nostalgia can be very interesting, because there is a reason why we're nostalgic about that specific period and not another period. For one, we may no longer have living relatives who remember that other period, for example, or we don't have a cultural reference uh, because of movies or whatnot that m- makes us think that we're remembering a certain period. You can think of, in the case of the U.S because obviously the U.S. is much more studied for obvious reasons, uh, stuff like how there w- there's this brand of toxic Christian masculinity that is basically an invention of characters like John Wayne and that sort of thing that you would see on TV at some point. And that figure basically becomes then politicized 
or in the case of Ronald Reagan, literally an actor becoming president, obviously. And that then becomes part of, like, there's almost like a feedback, if you see what I mean. And, you know, that's not a memory. People who are remembering the the quote-unquote old Wild West and whatever, that's not actual memories. That's people who think that this is how things were at a particular period of time because they watched a movie that came out in the 50s or 60s or what have you. So you can really see how it can it can play um, sort of both ways. And nostalgia in Lebanon is that, pre-war usually, or in some cases, but it will be more fictionalized, it goes back to like Ottoman times. So that's like the Fairuz movies of the 70s, uh, where, you know, it's usually like a uh, peasant um, uh, setting. It's al- almost always in the mountains. There's actually an interesting dynamic where the coast is almost never pictured in kind of old-timey romanticization of Lebanon. Um, it's almost always the, the mountains where religions were not necessarily mentioned by name. You know, people were mixing or whatever. And they were fighting a common enemy, which was the Ottoman occupiers. Mm. And that that's how it's portrayed. And there's even if one of the films, I think it's Safar Barlik, if I'm not mistaken, there's another one, where there's even a sympathetic Syrian uh, man, because that's not very common in, in Lebanese cinema, to be honest. And because there was, again, a common enemy, you know, uh, the, the guy was from, I think, Aleppo, Homs or something. But it didn't matter as much in the context because, well, we were both speaking, both are speaking Arabic and they're fighting this Turkish speaking, uh, you know, invaders or whatever, or occupiers or whatever. Um, so you can really see how that changes today. It, it would be completely unheard of to have the nostalgia that portrays the 60s, let's say with a sympathetic Syrian figure. Like, you would just won't see that in, 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 in that kind of, of romanticization of the past. So it changes a lot. Yeah, and like you said, it's, uh, nostalgia is more about like how you feel about right now than how you actually feel about the past. And I think one of the crucial things also, like especially when I have these conversations with people in Turkey about like how they miss the early noughts like in the late 90s, a lot of the times it gives me the impression, look, mate, you miss being young, <laughs> you know, let's, let's say this, like, it doesn't matter, like, what the city was like, you were young at the time, and you were going out, and you were having a few drinks, and you were socializing with your mates, exactly. and you were listening to, like, and a lot of the people that I see who are, like, the most vocal about how much they don't like what's happening, and they're living, like, suburban homes with, like, 2.3 kids, and, you know, like they drive to work in their kind of uh, Mercedes Benz and coming back and forth, you know, like that's all they do in life. And if they accidentally go to um, go to Istiklal Avenue, it's like pushing their baby on a pram whilst trying to balance their Starbucks on their nose, you know, and like there's too many people and they hate it. Of course. I mean, that place is not for you. Like when you were 20 years old, that place was for you because that's where you were socializing. And now there's other 20 years old people who are like coming from all over the place. And uh, that, that's just a different lifestyle. It's it's funny because it it surprises a lot of people when uh, I say, or what other people also say, like there are lots of folks in Lebanon who are nostalgic about the war, about the war periods. And they talk about it a lot. You see this in the movies. There's this amazing scene in uh, Rassan Salahab's Phantom Beirut, uh, which, as it happens, I shared it on Instagram yesterday. And it's about a one of the main characters being interviewed, uh, interviewed like she kind of speaks to the camera, um, interviewed in quotations. <laughs> I didn't say this out loud. Um, speaking to the cameras in the 90s, so like about a decade after the end of the war, and saying like, 
one thing that she um actually let me let me bring it up exactly so i don't butcher it so one thing that she says which is very interesting is that i'm quoting her here and this is like my the english translation the problem is that i used to dream more during the war tomorrow when the war ends i would do this and that i could become someone and it's like a quote of her talking my biggest disappointment after the war was to realize that my desires were too large now that the war is over everything seems smaller and this is something that a lot of people have talked about like during the war you were looking forward to the end of the war and you were able to you know put plans aside you're able to say well i i was i cannot i'm not gonna learn the piano now i'll learn it in five years you know i'm not gonna I can't do this or that now. I can learn it in five years. I can do this in five years or whatnot. And obviously life catches up to you when, when it's actually done. And then in the 90s, you also had other things to do or whatever. And it's also the fact that there was a regularity, not always, of course, but there were periods during those 15 years, which is a long period of time at the end of the day, where you almost knew more or less where to go and, and where not to go. You knew where the, when the electricity would cut off and you knew when you had electricity and you knew that, for example, I'm making a scenario up that, you know, between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. on a Friday, there won't be anything uh, because of whatever, uh, evening prayers or something, something regular was happening. And it was almost like this understanding that nothing major or nothing violent will happen in that period of time. And so during that period of time, you would go and visit some friends, you would play board games, play chess, play what have you, have a drink, have a coffee, what have you. And then you go back to your to your house and you maybe you might stay in the house for the rest of the evening and maybe a different kind of routine would establish itself. And the familiarity of it often trumps the, the fact that this situation objectively wasn't a good situation. It was obviously a bad situation. But the familiarity is a very strong... We, we, we almost like we, we strive for something that's familiar, something we can recognize and especially a, a familiar that we can place ourselves in. Like, as I said, like my <clears throat> early, you know, few years of the, the past decade wasn't because it was an amazing decade. By, by no means, you know, could you make that argument. But for me personally, I was okay. Or at least relatively speaking, I had, you know, I had some financial difficulties, but I was able to see some friends and I was able to have some kind of life and can hang out you know that sort of thing and the hanging out is really important so the the other thing is that i i the reason why i've been reassessing nostalgia is because it just never goes away uh it's just it just never does and it just changes like people have different kind of detail the details of the that nostalgia changes but there's always this whole good old days feeling that changes uh, that remains constant despite the fact that the details of it can change and it's like that movie, and I hate that I'm going to mention Woody Allen here, but it's like, you know, Midnight in Paris. And it's always like, you know, oh, well, the 1920s were the good old days. And then you go to the 1920s because they had this weird thing going on. And in the 1920s, they were saying, oh, the 1890s were the good old days or whatever. The good old days, are, it's like the grass is greener on the other side kind of thing. But there's like two sides of this. And maybe we can get into this a bit more. There's like individually, and this can change from individual to individual. But then there's politically, like how this, how can, how is this transformed on a national scale or on a political scale, on an electoral scale, on a whatever scale, like on, on a scale in which it is more likely to affect other people's lives, especially. And this is where 
uh, obviously, I think we need to be more critical. It's one thing where it's kind of like your own personal thing, if you want, but you don't necessarily act upon it politically because you know that you have your own biases or whatever. And it's another thing when you don't recognize those biases, biases and you think that your quote-unquote memory or that your past or whatever is the past and it's the one that is the correct one and all of the other ones are just inconveniences and daily reminders of, oh, if we only get rid of that image, of that distraction or those people, obviously when it gets very dark, then the good old days can then reestablish themselves and, and whatnot. And I do see that in Lebanon today as well. Like This is the flip side of it. I feel like even from like a very personal perspective of like how we remember things, especially what you were talking about earlier in terms of like we always remember something in different ways at different stages of our lives. Uh, even then there is like because like the way that you reflect back on you remembering something in the future can be quite quite embar- like in the past can be quite embarrassing right now, you know. Uh that's actually uh uh, the story that I wrote for the Nostalgia in the Periphery collection, the one about um, the one about like a chewing gum uh, comic character, uh, Tippy Tip. It's kind of it starts off with uh, it's written in second person, uh, but it's basically me. Uh, so it starts off it that was a kind of like a chewing gum. How to work, talk about it, like. It's a story that's kind of like wrapped around the chewing gum. And like when you unwrap it, you chew the chewing gum. And there's like usually like maximum three frames, sometimes just one frame of like a comic strip. And there would be like this kind of silly looking character doing like silly things. And when I was a child, of course, like that was for me, you know, like I, I would chew the chewing gum. Like I would smell uh, the smell of the chewing gum from the wrap. Then like I would like read them over and over again. And I thought it was like hilarious. And it was kind of like these really, really wholesome stories. Like he would come up with like this weird device to kind of solve an everyday problem, or he would have some kind of like, uh, I don't know, like he would kind of like shower with a, with a fire truck's hose, things like that. And I remembered finding that hilarious, of course. It was kind of like almost like an escapism um, from from life itself to, to be in this place where like there was this like super wholesome character. And then I went through a stage of life in the kind of, uh, in the kind of mid north I guess, when I was kind of like, uh, like 18, 17 to 19, when I was um, a hormonal hurricane, I was going through my, uh, my phase of just being angry at everything. And that was the period where all this kind of like, angry aesthetic was the thing like i'm just thinking stuff like banksy and stuff like that you know like smashing corporate logos and there's like the seattle kind of stuff and like everybody was like kind of we we have this kind of shifting anger that was like against capitalism but it's also part of our like youthful rebellion against stuff and back then it wasn't like such a political time as well so if you were like a political person who was angry about stuff like you were kind of like a dork you know people thought that you were weird like why aren't you just like chilling with the rest of us and I chose to be like a super angry person at that time and I remember finding stuff like tippy tip to be kind of like uptight bougie culture because it was all about kind of like we were smashing logos we were smashing capitalism and tippy tip was like one of them and in the story I kind of go into kind of uh, I kind of do a phantasm 
fantastical tale about like where the tippy tip was like a cia spy because he was like always dressed really weird and funny he had like a huge bow tie which looked like it lodged kind of like a photo camera inside or whatever uh so then i go through that phase and then i come to the phase that i'm in now when i look at tippy tip then i feel like i've kind of been i don't know almost like unjust to it by kind of like hating it this much but I also feel like I have been, I also understand why I've been so angry against it because there was a lot of stuff like uh, he would be walking around and there would be like some hairy dudes, uh, like the traditionally Turkish looking guys who would be doing things that are really rude. They would be like bad drivers or they would be kind of like, you know, they would be taking up too much space. And Tipi Tipu is this like totally like Americanized version of a person, like an American suburban dweller kind of character he would always kind of get revenge from these like hairy bullies and the more i kind of started to grow up the more like i physically realized that i look much more like those typical turkish hairy bully guys than i do like tippy tip so then i was like hey you know what's up <laughs> uh so for me it's been like a journey of kind of rediscovering this childhood character over and over again not just because like i keep realizing that there's something new that I think about the character itself, but it tells me, because it's been with me for so long, it tells me something about who I used to be in these different periods of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you that allows you, that gives you a perspective about what this character can mean for somebody else also. Because when your own reaction to this character changes every 10 or 5 years, then you can start to think about like, wow, it probably doesn't mean what it means to me to somebody else who's in a different situation. So the only thing, the, the only real way that I think we can learn about like how things we feel about something makes other people feel is through realizing how the way we feel about it changed. I, that was a weird sentence, but I hope so. <laughs> no, I, I get that. And I, I always take it. And that, that's sort of the, the, the usefulness of that framework of the mnemonic imagination is that you don't treat your memories because you recognize that they are not quote-unquote 100% accurate, it they, it doesn't make them false. It doesn't make them wrong or or what have you. It actually just, it's your, it, it encourages you to re-question the very validity or the, re-question this binary of something has to be 100% true, 100% false in order to be worthy of engagement or whatever. Because again, we are seeing, I mean, especially today, we're recording this in 2022, like we're seeing time and time again, how much something does not have to be accurate, quote unquote, for lots of people to believe in it anyway. And for this to 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 be um, like it, the fact to, to the extent that just pointing out that this is factually incorrect, as we already know, isn't uh, working. It's just not like we see this with not necessarily uh, climate science denial or climate change denial, but a hard, so let me make the distinction. There is like hard climate change denial and there is soft climate change denial. And hard climate change denial is like the, you know, there is no climate change kind of thing. And soft climate change denial is, I think, is actually the majority. It's people who, uh, they, it, they, they recognize that, yes, it does exist. Yes, uh, humans are uh, behind it and whatnot. But, you know, what can you do? It's too complicated. It's too big. It's, it's impossible to deal with or, or whatever. 
and this makes a lot of sense and this is where like the component of of temporality or time comes in it because it makes certain kind of sense if you're only thinking of you know from now to next week or from now to next month but then when you scale it up to three decades well clearly it would have made a huge difference had we acted in the early 90s or late 80s as uh, in the same logic clearly it would make a huge difference if we act now as if we're thinking 30 years ahead like not doing anything now will make those next 30 years much worse than doing something about it now and you end up kind of thinking about it this way which i think is more uh, useful in that sense uh, the other thing is that and you know whenever i can insert james baldwin i would do so he has this um uh, insight and you, people can see this in that documentary by raul peck uh, i am not your negro as, as it is called um he had this insight of like when he was a kid he did not know that he was black he just did not know that he thought he was white because all of the faces around him on tv and whatnot were white and so that's kind of the, the representation debate and, and what have you, which is a kind of a different conversation, although it's related. Because it's related because like part of my nostalgia or part of my the movies I grew up watching with is, you know, for the most part, people who didn't look like me. And for the most part, the people who did look like me were the bad guys in those other films. And it's kind of this very, it's it's a, and I hate to be used, it's not schizophrenia in the literal sense, but it's schizophrenia in this cultural sense. We usually think of schizophrenia as like, multiple personality disorder which is obviously not schizophrenia but i'm using it as a cultural shorthand here of like you know it's not you and you know this enemy or this bad person in the movie is not you but there's also no one who looks like you that's a good person and therefore at some point you internalize it in one way or another it's just it's almost inevitable and for him it was that that he he did not know he was black until the world told him that he was black and he had no association it's a bit different than my case but he actually had no association of blackness as a neg- negative thing because he grew up in a black family in Harlem and obviously the faces around him were mo- mo- mostly black. And it's only on TV that he at some point started realizing that they were talking about him. And he gave that example of, I think it's Gary Cooper, if I'm not mistaken, or possibly John Wayne. It's one of those cowboy types shooting, uh, basically having a battle, a war against Native Americans. And he thought that he was Gary Cooper or he was John Wayne because he didn't know better, essentially. It's at some point that he realized that, well, he's actually the Native American in that story. In that context, he's closer to the Native American than he would be to a John Wayne figure. And that that's a form of violence. Like, that's a form of, of the, the movies that now when we watch them, and I think a lot of us, wouldn't want to watch them but i think it could be an interesting social experiment to do so although we would have to be mentally ready for it to watch a lot of those films that came out right after 9 11 and right after the invasion of iraq in 2003 a lot of them were um what we would consider like really far-right propaganda like we would really acknowledge and identify it as such today of in the sense of like the muslims were just this one character and everything was just this binary and not they were any kind of nuance is basically apologia of terrorism or what have you. And we, I think we, I mean, we, I'll speak for myself, looks at this now and finds it very, very hostile, very odd, very out of place. But obviously 20 years ago, it that was a dominant thing. That was the thing that most people were talking about and whatnot. And so I, I say this because I'm wondering at what point would this, with the internet, because that's one main thing that has changed, where memories are no longer 
you know, just something that happened in the past that you cannot access immediately. Now you can, in one way or another, the past can be accessed in that sense. And so something that happened that's called the memification of everything, something that happened 10 years ago can feel as present as something that's happening that happened last year because of the way we're archiving it in our memories is more or less similar now. It's all images and videos and audios and, you know, memes and, and, and whatnot. It's no longer just like that separation between my quote-unquote memory and this other mediated form of the past or whatnot. The, the, the clear separation, although it was never a strict binary, I think has been eroded a bit more. And this is where obviously liquidity and all of those concepts kind of come into place, I think. But I'll stop, I'll stop rambling on this. Uh, I think among what you said, the, the, the first thing that kind of really, um, really bubbles my emotional cauldron is the whole 9-11 stuff. Like I was, how old was I? I'm born in 1984, six, I was like 17 when, when that happened. And I was going to like an international school in Ankara, Turkey, and like a lot of my classmates were Americans, and a lot of our teachers were like Europeans and Americans as well. But like we were in Turkey, and uh, I I immediately remember I immediately remember being kind of being associated or like associating myself actually with the bad guys because like we were kind of like. I was kind of already getting into leftist politics and I was already kind of like against US imperialism or whatever. And I saw that, although like, uh, I hate having to reaffirm this every time because, <laughs> because it just like needs to be over. Although, of course, I condemn the attacks. But of course I do. Uh, but I just I hate having to say this all the time. Anyway, uh, I do. But I also felt, I part of me has also felt like a strange sense of like justice was done. I, I think there's a lot that I need to, uh, there's a lot of emotional stuff that needs to be unpacked there because like justice does not have to be taken in this kind of form. Uh, but yeah, and, and as I grew up, like I kind of like studied abroad and as a white passing person, like I could actually completely erase the traces of like Middle Easternness for my appearance, but I always chose not to. I always chose to like leave a big ass beard that's going to scare off white people and just kind of like dress <laughs> like a certain kind of way. Yeah. Uh, and talk kind of way like uh sometimes like, I even got into this kind of thing of pretending that I am the kind of Muslim that they're afraid of just for like just just to set up my own boundaries. You know? And but then it just kind of made me realize that like the most important thing is not scaring people. The most important thing for me is to like be who I want to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of these times, like these memories can almost kind of like be an obstacle into, into being who you want to be. Like, because you're just in an endless dialogue with this machine that's always trying to describe you as one way or another, as either like the evil, horrible Muslim or the assimilated good Muslim who can have a drink and can eat pork. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel like I need to perform one or the other, but I just don't. I just don't want to care about. This. I just want to be who I want to be. You know? Yeah, no. I, I obviously, for me, there's the added dimension that I don't even come from a Muslim background, and there was there were, how growing up there was always there felt at least this kind of 
two choices to have to make. Either you throw the Muslims under the bus or mm-hmm. you you by by actively declaring that you're not one of them or by uh, basically risking being uh, thrown, you know, under the bus along alongside them, if you see what I mean. And obviously this this is something that when I was young and and I wasn't really thinking about it, like I would not describe 9-11 or the 2003 invasion as major events in my personal life. The major events in my personal life were like the 2005 assassination of Hariri and the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah, 2008 stuff, and then obviously things that that followed after that. But even more, um, so that kind of is the political background, I would describe it. And then more recently, obviously, 2015 and 2019. So fairly recent stuff, I I would say. Um, Okay, so that's kind of like nostalgia in depth in some sense. I'm wondering if we can now switch to the second bit, which is like the periphery aspect of it. Um, well, for those who don't know, obviously I've, sp- I've spoken about this a number of times and you know, whatever, but for those who don't know, what do we mean by, by periphery in this context? What are we talking about? Um, it always kind of like pains me to describe this because I think that describing yourself as like having, like coming from the periphery, I think that one of the key things is kind of like a realization that you don't matter as much as you think you do. I think the the primary thing that I um, that I incorporate in this definition of periphery is this realization that there is a part of the world where culture is produced and where culture is consumed. And a lot of the times, especially when I was growing up, probably not as much right now. That's why nostalgia and the periphery kind of like mix into a particularly interesting combination. Because when I look at more like younger Gen Z kids um, in all over the place, I can see that there's kind of like a kind of like a renaissance of like more like local cultures that are kind of um, that can claim much more space than they used to when I was growing up like 20 years ago. So when I talk about or, or like I, I suppose as Mongol media, when we kind of like deal with periphery, we kind of talk about this idea that like the culture that we have, does not influence kind of quote unquote global culture as much as like American and European culture. So like we consume something that comes from one direction and kind of, I don't know, we watch uh, Home Alone and we identify with Macaulay Culkin. I don't know, we, like, <laughs> these are like the big tops for me, like Ninja Turtles. And I like, I understand what New York is like and like what the New York sewers must be and how they eat pizza. And like, I know all of these things about like living in New York through watching Ninja Turtles. But a New Yorker knows shit all about like what Ankara is like. I think periphery, basically, especially when, when in combination with nostalgia, it's this kind of inequality, uh, this asymmetrical relationship that we have between who gets to know about whose culture, essentially. Mm. It's it's funny. I have this. F- so obviously, I agree with everything you said, and I have this additional funny definition of the periphery which is you come from a city that's not worthy enough to be destroyed by aliens in Hollywood movies. Mm. And it's, it's just one of those things that mo- if you watch the Avengers, I remember that because I wasn't, I wasn't, I was living in Edinburgh in Scotland and there is a scene where like shit happens in Edinburgh and people, and they only say Scotland, they don't say Edinburgh in, in, in the movie uh, and people in the, in the room with me, like in the cinema. And this, this would have been, when did it come out? 2019 or something. 
um, were excited. <laughs> they were excited. Oh, were represented. Like the, the heroes, the superheroes, the fictional people are in our city were being represented. And, you know, sometimes it goes beyond the main Western cities. Uh, occasionally, you will have like a Kenya or a India or what have you. But most of the time, and, and obviously, and I'm saying as important cities, not just as cities where weird things happen, like Indiana Jones or, or whatever, whereas like the, the Orient or the exotic place or what have you, um, which can take, uh, you know, not so funny dimensions to it, obviously. But so, so yeah, it's like, you know, London has been destroyed so many times in, this, in those movies that I, I felt I knew London before moving to London, before mm-hmm. I, I actually went there. New York, I've never been there. I haven't yet traveled to New York. And yet I feel when I go there, it won't feel that alien compared to, um, I don't know, going to Ankara for the first time, which I haven't done yet, or, you know, or, or what have you. Um, and that that's, that's, that's powerful. Like, that's something that it informs things as human as migration patterns, because you, you want to go to the place that you feel you sort of know that's not your home because you had to leave your home or whatever. But you feel like, well, you know enough of it. It's familiar enough that you you can figure you you can figure things out in one way or another if you speak the language or, or other other kind of skills or privileges or what have you. Um, the other thing about the periphery that I kind of like, and I've, I've obviously taken it uh, myself as well, is that it helps me reorient certain things in my mind. I I think very visually as a, as a certain number of times. And if I think of the map, I know it's not the correct map. I know it's not accurate. And so it allows me to think of different poles. And in those different poles, there's always a center and a periphery. And that periphery can also be a center to something else. So in the case of of Lebanon, Lebanon is peripheral to whatever, the UK or France. But Beirut, uh, so like the the rest of Lebanon is peripheral to Beirut. Uh, Arcel and, you know, or Akkar or I don't know, other places in Lebanon, the south or what have you, are all peripheral to Beirut in the sense that Beirut is, again, where culture, quote unquote, is produced, high culture, especially, or quote unquote, high culture. Or, you know, obviously where politics is and where the journalists are and where what is being talked about is talked about because, you know, it's happening in Beirut. And, you know, the immediate negative consequences of something like that is, you know, during the 2019 uprising and revolution, um, when the police was cracking down in the south or the parties or Hezbollah or the others were cracking down in the south, it didn't get as much attention as when the cops, for example, were cracking down or general security were cracking down in Beirut. Uh, it's the same act, you know, and sometimes it's filmed in the same way and whatnot. But, you know, you may have only one video instead of 20 videos. You know, that that changes things. And... What's very useful for me is that this, uh, the periphery, is that this allows me to understand why, despite the fact that I'm someone who, um, in the French imaginary, in the French nationalist imaginary, I'm one of the quote-unquote good ones, quote-unquote good Arabs. You know, I'm a Lebanese, Christian, Maronite, uh, formerly middle class, for what's left of the middle class in Lebanon, and, you know, and so on and so forth. I speak the language. I even, I, I, I can't even roll my R's. You know, that's all of the stereotypes and cliches. I, I, I take them, but I'm not French. And I was born there and I have family members there and whatnot, but I don't have the citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the citizenship because, uh, you know, specific, they removed the, the right to Jusoli, as it's called, uh, a few years before I was born and whatnot. 
And so I, by an accident of history, essentially, I've been always aware, although I wasn't able to name it, that I'm both privileged in many ways and at the same time not welcomed in other ways. Like that there's always a negotiation. I always have to sort of play a certain role for those privileges to be uh, accessed or, or what have you. And that's the main thing that I, I did not entirely understand that separates me and, let's say, a white European. And obviously, I'm speaking from Switzerland here. That the privileges are not conditional. The, the access to, to the in-group compared to those other others, you know, the Muslims or the brown people or the black people or whatever, depending on the situation where you're in, the, the European city, I mean, where you're in, is not, is not conditional in the case of a let's say, quote-unquote, white European, and I'm simplifying a bit. Um, and that's something that's, that's very useful to understand because it, it makes me understand, like, now when I'm in a situation where I'm surrounded by only white people, let's say, before I may, and before I mean, like, let's say 15 years ago when I was a teenager, I may act as if I'm one of them. I may pretend as if I'm one of them. And that which comes with excluding the same kind of people. You can't be in the in-group if you have a different other. You have to have a similar enough other. And they cannot be your others, obviously. They are the in-group. The other has to be someone that cannot fit in your in-group unless they themselves fit a certain number of criteria, usually uh, usually, um, sorry, usually around like erasing a part of themselves in one way or another or a part of the culture that they come from or the country that they come from or something very visual maybe or whatnot but definitely some some kind of erasure in one way or another. And this now allows me, like, I'm basically extremely self-conscious in any of those in any of those environments. I know that if there's only white people, let's say, there are certain topics that are more likely to be brought up um, in a problematic way than if there was a couple of non-white people in the room, for example. Not always, but it just makes it slightly more likely. And I'm it's, able it's to kind of negotiate. of increases. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So this chance increases because it is what it is. You know, like you, you won't, you won't express those quote unquote fears that you have and whatnot in the same open way. If there is like, you know, five black people in the room with you and here I'm, I'm thinking specifically of an Italian context in my mind. So it might sound weird to people listening to this, but it's something that I've seen and experienced time and time and time and time again. But yeah. Uh, well, the thing is that like, kind of as being really self-aware of my kind of degree of white passingness, what I find often is that when I'm in the company of like a group of white people, they kind of forget who I am and where I'm from because like I speak like this and I look a certain way and they would feel comfortable in talking about like how they feel about Muslims uh, uh, because like they, they, they forget like the, the register kind of slips sometimes and then I kind of realize, whoa, this is what you guys are like when you're just like, you know, chilling with each other but on on a kind of like more fundamental on i guess like more empowering <clears throat> no the reason why like, i really care about doing a project like uh, nostalgia in the periphery is because it allows like a window for us to see like within all these like peripheries within peripheries within peripheries it gives us a window of like creating a certain kind of identity around the idea of feeling like we are secondary 
Like, because if there is, there's clearly an identity of people who can feel like they're like the primary culture, who are like the driving force of international global culture. And I want to be able to belong in a place in the world where I can kind of like have meaningful contact with people about what it feels to not feel that way, what it feels to be like the kind of like passive uh, or like what it feels to have been treated like a passive vehicle for somebody else's ideas. And that has been quite, it's been quite astounding because like I get to learn so much about Lebanon because like you and I, when we're talking, like I get to kind of like, we get to translate each other's experiences in a way that we have common references of being peripheral. I mean, not that we have the exact same experiences, but we at least we have one point of reference. Because before this idea of like coming to grips with the fact that we are kind of like second class global citizens, we always used to have to translate things through the common references of the culture that we have consumed. Like we would always have to reference John Wayne. I'm, I'm just kind of making this up right now. Uh, to be able to describe how something feels. Now, like the more we kind of develop a common language around what it feels like to be peripheral, now we can have those collective symbols. And I think in the future, uh, that might become unnecessary, but it's really good to be able to have like a new set of references that we we can do kind of like group therapy around. Okay, and so now let's now let's try and like put them together. Nostal- we spoke about nostalgia and we spoke about periphery. Do you think there are like how would I say this? Are there specific nostalgias in the periphery? So because I think to some extent nostalgia is a pretty universal thing. Uh, mm-hmm. To some extent, everyone has it. Everyone feels it. Uh, the details obviously change whether you're in, I don't know, Sweden or Turkey or Lebanon or New Zealand or whatever. Um, but to another extent, there is there is something that changes maybe on the uh, on the consequential level or something like the nostalgia that I mean, to, to be very blunt about it, um, Americans feeling being nostalgic about something is something I need to know about. Like I need to I need to be aware of what kind of what kind of tropes and and whatever are being or let me rephrase that like what kind of culture war for lack of a better term is being talked about now in the u.s because you know it's the u.s it's nuclear power superpower what have you a a donald trump 2.0 comes to power this will absolutely affect my life whether i want to or not and this is my way of of kind of preparing or being vigilant or or whatever mentally preparing myself anyway compared to for example i uh, don't quote-unquote need to know what libyans were nostalgic about in the 70s i happen to know that because i want to know that but i don't need to it it won't necessarily change my life in the in the immediate sense or i think it doesn't let's say or most most of us think it won't um because of power and politics and geopolitics and how just the world is today. The, the thing is that I'm wondering is that nostalgia in the periphery can be one of those, um, what's the term? I'm probably going to use the wrong word here, but kind of like spoilers in, in global politics. What I mean by that, and here I'm, uh, Russia is not a peripheral country by, by that definition, but let's kind of use that, that example 
or let's use Ukraine, which would which would count as a periphery here. Um, the sort of imaginings that are in Ukraine, the sort of like the recent past, uh, you know, resisting the Nazis, uh, being part of the Soviet Union, uh, and then having at the same time as that, like a problem with Russian imperialism or a problem with uh, Russian uh, supremacy and ethno-chauvinism and all of that, those are certain things that for the most part are ignored, were and still are to some extent ignored in, in the West, for example. They're not, it's not part of the sort of the cultural register of things that quote-unquote matter. And somehow after February 24th, everyone, or at least it sort of felt that way, and this is a very biased uh, uh, remembrance, obviously, again, uh, given what, what we uh, have been talking about, but, you know, a lot of people suddenly re- remember that Ukraine exists, suddenly remember that uh, Russia has had these plans all along, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not necessarily nostalgia specific, although you will have that. Like Russia has been um, weaponizing a certain kind of World War II era nostalgia, obviously, the Great Patriotic War, as they call it, in which they and they alone were fighting uh, the Nazis, and that this was a war against them personally, and they are the centers of that story. And everything else is sort of either a detail, like that doesn't matter too much, or they are only relevant in as much as they affect our story. Like this, uh, the us here still has to be central in that story. And once you understand that, you start understanding why they're so obsessed with something like Ukraine, why they're so obsessed with something like that. Otherwise, you know, they can move along with their lives geopolitically and it will be fine. No one will like Ukraine has never been a real threat to them in that sense, except as a threat to that idea of the past. And we saw and now we know, like we have even intelligence on this that this actually affected the decision-making. Like This actually affected the war itself and how they thought that Kiev would fall, you know, in a few days or, you know, stuff like that. And here we are three months later. And that's just one example. It's not even the best one. This is one example of how these ideas of the past can affect those centers, can affect the, if we're using as center and, and periphery, can also affect those centers because for the most part, those centers don't think about the peripheries but the peripheries are there nonetheless. And I'm I'm kind of wondering, and here I'm kind of thinking out loud, and let me know if any of this makes sense, how nostalgia in those contexts, to be very specific about it, or maybe remembrances about the past or what have you to be broader about it, how, how that differs, if at all, from, let's say, nostalgia in London or nostalgia in Paris. And I'm being very, you know, uh, randomly specific about it just for the purpose of the conversation just to just to understand the question like yeah. are you asking how being feeling nostalgic in the periphery differs from being nostalgic at the core yeah yeah if at all um i can't speak for like um for like a sense of nostalgia that's not temporal also i think the time period is kind of crucial here as well. Like I am mostly thinking about the kind of nostalgia that millennials feel. Like I think Gen Zs are going to feel a much different kind of nostalgia. Gen Xers and boomers mm-hmm. have their own kind of like really different nostalgia. But as the millennial generation, um, I get the feeling that we are we have grown up in a period of time in which what's kind of 
euphemistically understood as global culture was like at its peak, you know. So for this generation of peripherals, I think our experience of nostalgia is very much uh, intertwined with this idea of a world that we understood to be collectively getting by together okay, but underneath this, underneath this kind of, what was the name for the uh, Pax Romana, or like Pax Americana for our kind of like period. Because we all ate McDonald's and we all drank Coca-Cola and we all went to watch Pretty Women with Julia Roberts, you know, like uh, we all were exposed to this idea that eventually like the world was, it seemed like it was traveling in a direction where all our differences would kind of like slowly melt in this kind of like ideal multicultural like fantasy. I think that's how people kind of imagine the world, at least until 9-11. And even after that as well, there was this kind of like feeling that, oh, globalism is going to melt the boundaries and there's going to be this kind of like our differences are going to matter less and less. And after about like 10 to 15 years of this ideology, uh, we have come to a point where like everybody wants to own up their identity a lot more now. And we who have grown up in this kind of, in the, in the halcyon days, in the, in the golden days of this kind of like global ideology, we have like a very specific uh, way in which we differ in our sense of nostalgia from people in the center because we thought that we were going to be in the center once. I mean, at least I did, you know, like if I, if I can speak English well enough, if I can acquire that cultural capital to pass myself off as like a citizen of the world, quote unquote, then like the doors would like open for me. And I have realized that this is not quite the case because it's, it's, it's a moving target. The more you kind of like assimilate into this like so-called global culture, the more they expect you to. Like at some point, it's not enough that you understand it's not enough that you understand their language. It's not enough that you understand their symbolism. But at some point, they expect you to condemn the things that you had before you acquired this global culture. So they expect you to detach from what you used to have before. And this is why like, I always feel really weird when I say, of course I condemn the 9-11 attacks, because this has always been one of the crucial key strategies of like forcing you to exclaim that you are not the Muslim that they are afraid of, you know. So the expectation keeps rising and we have come to a stage where the world that we've dreamed about has not materialized. And they had not dreamt of a world like that because they already had all the opportunities. It was us who wanted something more out for our lives and we just mm -hmm. couldn't get it. And we're disappointed and angry. Yeah, no, actually, that's a very good, very, very good point. And thanks for framing it this way. It's, it's really that like those those of us in the periphery or, or what have you and here i'm just rephrasing what you said basically or resummarizing it we were sold a certain idea of the world in which we may become one day if we behave <laughs> if we might put it this way um exactly the core or we might you know we might have our own avengers or we might have our own whatever you know and there's always that that sense that all of the main players in that game that were calling let me rephrase that the main actors or the main ideas that we have like there is a reason there's a very odd reason as to why i i still think of let's say the nordic countries as part of the west and as part of those things and part of it is because well there's ikea 
or there's Nokia, or, you know, there is those kinds of references that I grew up with in one way or another, that it's almost like it lodged itself in some part of my brain and it associated itself with all of those other things. And that can, you know, that's a double-edged sword in many ways. And that, that actually flattens the differences between those places and, and whatnot. But that's a different conversation. Um, all right, well, we can sort of start wrapping it up slowly. And usually what I do is I ask folks to recommend three books, if that's okay with you, that, you know, three books that you recommend to our listeners, maybe on this topic, maybe on any other topic. It doesn't really matter, any kind of genre. And, uh, yeah, we can have final thoughts after that if you want. Sure. I mean, I'm going to do four because, like, uh, today, like, we basically talked ab about a book. Uh, it's nostalgia yeah. in the periphery that we have published. Like, I, <laughs> not that I've published it, but I totally recommend it. Um, then, like, I'm going to read, like, the three books that I want to recommend are all fiction. Um, recently, I got into audiobooks, uh, which for me is, like, the perfect way of consuming fiction and i've been like consuming a lot more fiction than i used to before that uh so the number one book that i want to recommend is um hanya yanaginahara's yanagihara's um people in the trees that's the last book that i've finished it's about this kind of like anthropological expedition to this kind of uh, pacific island where they discover a turtle that makes uh that makes people immortal when they eat it and it's about like being like having been trained as an anthropologist as well and kind of like being interested in uh, semi-speculative fiction that's not like too deep into like the speculation, but it's almost like kind of credible. I thought it was like a fascinating book. Uh, the second book I want to recommend is The Time Regulation Institute by Ahmet Hamdi Tantanar. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a classic of modern Turkish uh, novel writing. It's uh, It's also kind of like, that level of speculativeness is always something that fascinates me, something that feels credible, but it's also kind of like really outlandish. It's about um, the founding of this uh, fictional institution back in the, uh, supposedly in the 1940s, 50s in Turkey called Time Regulation Institute. So they walk around the streets and asking people to, to, asking people to see their watches. And if their watches is kind of like off by five minutes, they give them a fine. So like it forces everyone to have their watches like in synchron uh, because like, it's kind of it's a metaphor for modernity and how modernity is enforced and it says a lot about it says a lot about like uh, the recent history of turkey i think uh and the final book that i want to recommend is interior chinatown uh by charles yu this might have been recommended before uh because it's like a really recent book uh, it's written in a movie script format. It's kind of like um, it's a it's a it's a novel about. Um, it's really difficult to describe. It's a it's a it's a novel about how like East Asians and Chinese people are represented in Hollywood, and it's written itself as a TV script. I think the author Charles Yu was like among the people who wrote uh, that TV show about. Uh, the Wild West, where they have like they go to the Wild West, where like everybody uses robots and things. I forgot what it was called. It was a pretty good show, especially the first season. Tempted oh, the, the one, the one with Anthony Hopkins. Ah, yes, Westworld was it? Westworld, yeah, yeah, yeah. Westworld, yeah. He was one of the writers of Westworld, so he writes it in TV script format, and it's kind of like the whole thing is a metaphor for like how Asians are represented in um, mm. in cinema. That was a really good book too. Amazing. Thanks for that. I read the first one. I haven't read the other two. Oh, you've read uh, People in the Trees. I have, yeah, yeah. 
That's like uh, Yanagihara's uh, most underrated novel, I think. Her other novels, they are like huge on Goodreads, but this one mm. was kind of like a bit overlooked. I really like that one. Mm-mm-mm. I haven't read the other ones. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really like that one. I read it a few years ago. It was recommended to me by an independent bookstore uh, guy in, in bookseller in, in Edinburgh, and I really enjoyed it, and I read it after that. Um, okay, well, I mean, we can now kind of wrap it up. Um, are there any thoughts that you like any questions you wanted me to ask or sort of things you wanted to kind of close on or whatnot and feel free to also mention like you know the usual pluggables basically where can people find you find manga media you know that sort of thing so yeah i'll just kind of like end up by briefly summarizing at least the format of uh, nostalgia in the periphery because it's kind of like a confusing format uh you can get it from our online store uh from mangalmedia.net and it's basically like a collection of prints and they're kind of like limited edition. And so a, a lot of them have been printed on um, in serigraphy format. Uh, it's five different kind of like stories, some fiction, some personal essays about like what it feels to be nostalgic in the periphery. Um, yeah, I just thought I'll summarize what this is about and not much else. Amazing. Well, if it's always good to speak. It was a pleasure also. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.